Good morning, church family. Please continue standing for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Michael, thank you. It's always good to hear you read and appreciate your sharing with us today, the reading from the gospel. I know, uh, want to remember, along with the other prayer concerns that Casey mentioned, that today is Toy King's first Sunday uh, to preach in her new appointment at Clark Memorial United Methodist Church. And that also reminds us that we have many United Methodist ministers across the Tennessee Western Kentucky Conference who are beginning a new relationship with a congregation and a parish. And especially, we want to keep uh, Toy in our prayers. I sent her word, uh, a text early this morning from all of us, letting her know that she was in our thoughts and prayers as well. Casey, thank you for your prayer and Mason praise team for your leadership among us today. We are beginning a new series at last today, summer series this morning, that sounds a little presumptuous at first. I, I, I thought about changing the title, but I couldn't do any better than this particular series called Critiquing Jesus. I think it's appropriate after a full year of what we've been doing in discipleship in our Walking with Jesus series, we divided up discipleship, Walking with Jesus, into five or six categories. We talked about the prayer life of Jesus. We talked about the power of Jesus. We talked about the prophecy of Jesus. We talked about the preaching of Jesus, the passion of Jesus. And then last week, we concluded by talking about the people of Jesus, kindred hearts. And we did 11 weeks on the people of Jesus. I think it's fitting to begin this series, I think it's appropriate to now examine texts that give voice to the critics of Jesus. Now, I, I for one, appreciate the fact that all four of the gospel writers, while they expose us to the appeal of his ministry, they also expose us to the fact that there was a good bit of disapproval to the ministry of Jesus, in fact, among his own kinsmen. Now, one of the things that spiritual leaders have to learn to deal with is the disappointment and discontentment of our constituents. I love the writing, I love the wisdom of Ronald Heifetz who once said, leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. 
I think there's a good bit of truth to that, don't you? I love what Oswald Chambers once said, who wrote my utmost for his highest. He said, often the crowd does not recognize a leader until he is gone, and then they build a monument for him with the stones that they threw at him in his life. There's truth to that. Spiritual leadership is not so much about taking people where they want to go. That's management. Spiritual leadership is about taking people where we know we need to go and yet resist going there. I think that criticism is the price we pay for leadership. In fact, I've gotten to the point after 38 years of ministry where I actually believe if nobody is criticizing you, you're probably not leading at all. I've discovered that too often in my own life, leaders waste time trying to satisfy the agendas of others rather than focusing on the mission, vision, and values of the organization that we serve. And so with that in mind, with that as a lens, for the next six weeks, we're going to look at some of the specific objections, some of the specific criticisms of Jesus during his ministry. To the text. The call of Levi, his name was Levi, is found in some form or fashion in all three synoptic gospels, the similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a Hebrew name, Levi, which literally means united or joined in harmony. That's interesting that Matthew's gospel refers to Levi as Matthew who we believe was the writer of the first gospel. And that name, Matthew in the Greek, means gift of Yahweh. Now, am I the only one in the room who thinks that Levi was an odd choice for ministry? I say that because the man was a tax agent. And I don't have to tell you, tax collectors as a group were despised as snoops Tax collectors in that age, they were the social equivalent of pimps and informants, narcs and stool pigeons. He was a traitor in the eyes of his Jewish kinsmen. Now, it's a risky thing to co-opt your religion with imperial power. That's a risky thing. To say that Jesus is Lord, which is our confession, is to say that Caesar is not our Lord. And yet this confession does not give any of us a license to reject government. It's interesting, Paul writes in Romans 13 verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. But what do you do when politics conflict with your theology. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, those who believe religion and politics are not connected do not understand religion or politics. It can be an interesting mix. And so I think for this reason and others that Levi is an odd pick to follow Jesus. And yet, as with the fishermen, Jesus comes calling. Jesus never stays locked up in the synagogue. 
Jesus is walking the streets. He's moving beyond the walls. He's teaching by the lake. And one day while passing the toll booth, he calls Levi. Follow me, he says. And Levi drops everything and follows Jesus. What you notice in this tax collector, as with the fishermen and the women who followed Jesus, is that there's an urgency in his response, especially in Mark. Mark uses the word immediate 40 times in 16 chapters. There's an urgency in this gospel. And later that night, apparently Levi was so psyched about his new vocation that he invited all of his rowdy friends over for dinner. And this is the point in the story where things go south. Apparently at the table that night, at the dinner party, surrounded by the riffraff of the community, the concern of the Pharisees is raised. And here's the concern. It's a question. Why does this rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Now, if you know the context, you understand that this is not really a question, is it? This is an accusation, is what it is. It's not really a query, it's an accusation. And both labels, tax collectors and sinners, represent groups that were ostracized from pious Jewish society. Tax collectors were ostracized for political and ethical reasons. Sinners were barred, banned for religious and cultic reasons. In fact, if you do some scripture study on this, if you look at the New English Bible, both groups are simply called in that translation, bad characters, bad company. In today's English version, they're referred to as outcast. The allegation by the Pharisees is about table fellowship. And let me just say a word for the Pharisees, since I kind of am one, I get it. For pious, faithful Jews who keep a kosher table, indiscriminate association with those who do not keep a kosher table is absolutely unthinkable. According to Jewish law, and this is in the Torah, it's in Leviticus chapter 11, dietary regulations are a form of holiness. Two years ago, last March, we were in Israel with some of you, and we were staying at a hotel in Jerusalem that had a kosher and a non-kosher menu, a kosher and non-kosher kitchen. And we noticed that they also had a special elevator that was not used by the Gentiles there, that on the Sabbath, the elevator would stop at every floor. You remember this? without anyone having to push a button. And the reason for that is on the Sabbath and on high and holy days, to push the button on that elevator would have broken the commandment to work on the Sabbath. Now, there were some of us who noticed that, and I accidentally got on that elevator on the Sabbath and spent the better part of the afternoon on it. I thought at first, some of us thought it was kind of humorous and a little silly, and then we realize we, we need to be careful. We need to watch our judgmentalism towards others' desire to maintain holiness. Holiness is a beautiful thing. 
Holiness is a godly thing. That's why 1 Peter 1.16, speaking for God, says, be holy as I am holy. The word in Greek is hagios. It means peculiar. It means that you're willing to be different. It means that I'm willing to be distinct or set apart. And so be cautious about judging others' maintenance of holiness. But as I rode that elevator, it also occurred to me that we need to be cautious in our desire to be holy that we don't isolate ourselves from the world. As I read the scripture, our calling is not to segregation, it's to reconciliation. It's to this difficult paradox of living in the world without being of the world. Some of you were asking about our family, the honeymooners. They returned. They're still married after two weeks, and we're grateful for that. Andrew and Adair just returned from St. Lucia. My son said to me, there were a lot of honeymooners there. Everybody had a shiny ring, it seemed. And we made some new friends, he said. But what was interesting is we would begin talking with folks and begin laughing and getting to know one another until the conversation turned to vocation. My son is a pastor. And he said, when the conversation would turn to vocation, it would get quiet because he's a pastor and she's a therapist. And he said, Dad, we almost every time had to do something or say something that sounded off the wall in order to level the playing field. I said, why? He said, because it's still true that the stereotype of a pastor is one who is hypercritical and overly judgmental. Now, most of the disciples that I know are among the most merciful, compassionate people that I've ever known, present company included. Most of the disciples that I know are not overly judgmental. They're very gracious, as is our Lord who said... In John 3:17, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. I was at Radnor this week. Have, have I ever mentioned Radnor to you? It's a holy place, holy place to me. And I was about to get on the trail when I looked over at one of the cars and there was a sticker on the window and it said this, humankind be both. Oh, I love that. Be both, be human and be kind. They ought to be a synonym for each other. To be human is to be kind, is to be gracious. Be both. Now, I think it's critical to note in this text that in the culture and subcultures of the first century, table customs were distinguishing marks of group identity. This was true racially, this was true ethnically, it was true religiously, it was true nationally. In fact, there was a Near Eastern proverb in those days that said, I saw them eating and I knew who they were. You can detect the origins of people oftentimes by the table customs. It's ironic to me that the basis for rejecting And critiquing both John the Baptist and Jesus was because of their eating habits. Watch this. 
John wouldn't eat with anybody. And Jesus ate with everybody. And the reason the Pharisees were so offended at the party was because the idea of eating with tax collectors and sinners seemed to condone their behavior. And birds of a feather flock together. One of the major brujas in the early church happened in a place called Antioch. This is northern Galilee, where the gospel was spreading there among Gentile people. There was a concern in Jerusalem at the headquarter of the movement that the movement now, the gospel movement, the renewal movement in Gentile territory would become diluted and watered down. And so they sent a delegation to Antioch to check it out. When the delegation got there, apparently the church was having a church supper. So it must have been a Wednesday night. And Jews and Gentiles had been spotted eating together. When Peter, who happened to be a Jew, saw them out the window coming, you know what he did? He sort of moseyed away from the Gentile table, afraid that if the Jerusalemites, uh, Jerusalemites saw him, he would be reprimanded severely. Why? Because table fellowship signified full acceptance and co-equal status. And you cannot have Gentiles thinking they're on equal footing with Jews. Not in the first century. By the way, this is why this table is open. Any person in need of grace can come to this table. We come in repentance and confession of sin, and you do not have to qualify to eat at this table. The grace you receive here is what qualifies you. This is why, as a result of that brouhaha in Antioch that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, look, in Christ Jesus, there isn't any Greek or Jew. There isn't any table custom. There isn't any slave or free. There isn't any male or female, but there is a oneness at this table. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's an interesting debate going on in our culture among our Catholic friends about whether to withhold the Eucharist from those who do not fully subscribe to church law. And I understand this concern, both from the people's point of view and the clergy point of view, I get it. But when you do like what we did last week, when you read of a loving father who actually killed the fattened calf for a prodigal, when you read that the son of God, that Christ himself fed Judas, the betrayer at a Passover table, you begin to perceive that grace perhaps is not a reward for the righteous, but it's a gift for the needy. And it's grace that enables our holiness. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not a question, it's an accusation. Because to eat with these outcasts looks like acceptance, and acceptance looks like approval. And notice Jesus' response, I love this. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, 
but only those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know if you've ever been to an emergency room. I hope you haven't. But if you have, you may notice, particularly on a Friday and Saturday night, that it is full. What I've also noticed is it isn't usually the healthiest patients in the emergency room who get most of the attention. It's the sickest people. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a great banquet. I love this, to a reception. And he says in this parable that many were invited, but when the dinner bell rang, there were very few who actually showed up. Everybody seemed preoccupied with more pressing matters. And so the host opened wide the doors of the hall and sent his servants back out to the highways and hedges to bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And I love verse 22. The servant says to the host, Master, what you have commanded us to do has been done, and there's still room. And there's still room. In Matthew 25, you have an apocalyptic end-time story about the good shepherd dividing the sheep and the goats. This is the final judgment scene. And according to that parable, the basis for the judgment comes down to making room for a needy stranger. Hmm. Last word. When we were serving in Atlanta specifically in, on the east side in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I remember one day meeting a couple for lunch. They, they had called and asked me to officiate their wedding. We made an appointment to talk at the table. I had known this young woman as a teenager in our youth group in a previous church. Her daddy had raised her. He'd been married numerous times. He had a shady past, but he had come to faith and he started a men's Bible study in his home. And, and I think she called me maybe because I was the only preacher that she had ever known. She called and asked, would you do the honors? And I said, yes. I met them at a restaurant in Lawrenceville, just down the street from the church where I often would have lunch with folks. When I walked in, there they were sitting, waiting for me, both in Seagram's t-shirts. They had piercings and chains. He had tattoos all over his body. His body was sort of an album of every experience I think he had ever had. And I noticed he was clutching his hand. He had a gauze uh, wrapped around his right hand. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, well, I had an accident while cleaning my pistol. I said, nice. I said, did I tell you I'm a chaplain for the Lawrenceville police? He said, no, you didn't. Nice. I was hoping for a booth in the back, but the waitress sat us right smack dab in the middle of everybody, and I knew most of them. And as I would pass by their table, some of our members were doing double takes, and we sat, and we talked, and we ate. And after about 15 minutes, the piercings and the tattoos disappeared, and they no longer saw the stuffed shirt and tie it was kind of like, uh, 
it was kind of like just three friends having lunch. And we talked and we prayed and we laughed and we planned and the meal sort of became a sacrament. In fact, sometimes when I remember the soup du jour, it tasted a little, little like bread and wine. And they were so nice that they even let me pick up the tab. <laughs> and I became aware that there were actually four of us in that booth and there was still room. It happens over and over and over and over and over again that whenever and wherever two or more are gathered in his name, it seems like there's a lot of room. And all you need to do, all you need to bring to the table is an appetite for grace and a willingness to follow. It is amazing to me that Jesus never once allowed social status or cultural norms to dictate his relationship. Never once. And yet, the accusation, he's a glutton and a drunkard, they said, a friend to sinners and tax collectors. Well, they got the last part right. Their critique of Jesus is our salvation. In fact, I think their criticism may have actually been a compliment. And I think it is also our mission statement. He looks beyond my faults and he sees my need. And there's room for me and for you. May it be so in us, in Jesus' name.